As I mentioned, I'm not Larry, but we are continuing in the series that uh, Larry has been preaching through in Philippians. So uh, we'll be looking today at chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Let's hear now God's holy word to us. Therefore, my beloved, just as you always have obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, so work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or complaining, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that on the day of Christ I may boast that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and priestly service of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. And so you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. And now, O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Many of us uh, have probably had the experience of starting a project. Uh, Everything looks planned, everything looks ready to go, uh, only to realize that the implementation, putting it together, actually doing it, uh, is a lot more difficult than first imagined. I see, Scott, you have a pool project right now, don't you? (laughs) Might have a relative uh, sense to this. It's often easy to start something, much more difficult to finish. Uh, Or if uh, another kind of analogy, if you've ever been handed a project, perhaps at works that somebody else has done, they've done all the preparation for it. It's just up to you to execute it. Um, Again, all the groundwork is laid, all the resources are there. uh, But now it's in a sense, you have to put it to use. You have to put it to work. These aren't perfect analogies, but there's something to this, uh, this kind of example, this uh, idea to our passage today, what Paul is doing here. Really, it's a movement from all the groundwork being there, all the accomplishment being done, and now working it out, putting it to work in your life. That's Paul's words, work it out, work it out. I realized this week it's actually a phrase that I sometimes use in my teaching uh, or teaching in in parenting or adult teaching but this phrase work it out like work out the work out the issue going on here if you're a parent sometimes you might say this to your kids to work it out between uh, your children uh, who are fighting Susie and I were actually going over math problems and there was the dreaded story problems if you remember those you know what I mean it's like Johnny has a basket of 30 apples two times as many it goes on so we, we list all of the different things of Johnny giving all the apples to different people, but then we have to work it out. So that's what I said. So, okay, we got all the numbers here. Now work it out to get the problem. Work out the sum. I've said the same thing with an adult student, actually, as I was working through a kind of complex argument in a passage we were reading. Uh, we kind of got all the parts of what the author was saying and saying, work it out now. Figure it out. What is he trying to say here? Work it out. Well, Paul is here moving to uh, what has happened to Christ. That was the passage we looked at last week. The great and glorious story of Christ's humbling and his exaltation to now how that should work out for us. 
Uh, that's the basic message really of the passage today. And what we should see is what it looks like to work out that salvation that Christ has won for us. I think the outline and flow uh, of the thinking here is actually pretty simple. There is an outline if you uh, would like one. Uh, the first verse kind of states the big overall goal. It's the big theme. Work it out. Work out your salvation. Then Paul actually gives us the ground for that. Well, how can I work out my salvation? How is that even possible? Because God is at work in you. God is at work in you. But Paul doesn't just leave it in that big kind of abstract. Do this and here's your uh, sort of energy for doing it. No, he actually gets specific there. He doesn't leave it in the abstract. He wants to give a specific application of what it will look like to work out your salvation. He says, not grumbling or complaining. This isn't just another command that Paul sort of randomly lists off. It seems like he wants this to be the specific application of how we work out our salvation. And Paul lays out three reasons, kind of outcomes, results, motivations uh, of why not to grumble and complain. What will happen? Uh, the first is really a reason for ourselves. He says uh, that we might be a certain kind of people. When we learn this kind of thing, this is who we will show and demonstrate ourselves to be. In a sense, that's almost, first of all, for ourselves, a kind of assurance of reminding ourselves of who we are and who we are in Christ. But he also gives us as a reason for a witness to the world. This is who you are if you practice and live it out this way, that the world will notice that this is the, the contrast of who you are. You might live as a counterculture to those around you. And then the last reason uh, Paul gives uh, is a reason for himself. We might kind of uh, extend it to those who minister to us, those who have poured into us, that it might confirm everything that others have taught us, that it might confirm the work that people have done around us in community. He says, work it out. Here's the reason you can work it out. Here's what it should look like when you work it out. And here is, in a sense, some examples or applications to work it out. So call for action. It's energy for that action. It's reasons for that action. And then an illustration of what it looks like in action when we do these things that Paul is calling us to. One of the reasons I think that we need to really pay attention to this passage today is because it actually challenges a lot of assumptions we might have, assumptions about salvation, especially as as evangelicals, especially as we inherit from our culture around us, uh, we often have an expectation for the quick and easy, for beginning things only. As I said, projects are great when you begin them. It's a lot harder when you're in the midst of it, working it out, implementing it out. So it's all the more important, I think, that we consider this passage today that Paul is speaking. Let's remind ourselves of uh, what Paul has said before this passage. Again, Paul is writing to the Philippians from prison. That's helpful to remember here as we get to this. He's seeking to encourage uh, these believers in his absence. He's not able to be there to preach and disciple them. Uh, and he especially is not even aware of whether he will live or die through this. He doesn't know. Could be that this sentence of uh, imprisonment may end very shortly for him. He may get out. He doesn't know. And what he has just encouraged the Philippians to do is to have the mind of Christ. As you live together, consider Christ and what he has done for you. 
This isn't just an example that he's wanting us to imitate, although it is that too. Uh, Paul is using Christ's own story as a basis for everything else that he's going to say. Uh, Jesus is the way of salvation. He's the one who opens the path that we are to walk on. He secured that destiny at the end. Christ went down to the depths that he was risen and exalted on high. So that's where we are going as well. He secured that destiny. He's blazed that path and is now the exalted Lord. So it's with this in mind that Paul can encourage the Philippians with their own obedience too, because the mind of Christ is theirs too. You belong in Christ. The very mind that was in him is there for you as well. And Paul is very positive. He opens off by saying, you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now in my absence, much more. Um, See, despite what some will tell you, Christian obedience really is possible. And even the dour Apostle Paul, who can write lots of things about the sinfulness of man, can also encourage and say, you've been obeying. You've been great. I've been hearing great things about you, even in my absence, that you continue to obey. It's not really obeying Paul, but obedience to Christ. But he doesn't stop there either. He says, so work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. First, let's notice something that's not said here. Uh, Notice that Paul doesn't say work for your salvation or earn your salvation as you work for it, as if by works. Clearly, that's everything against what Scripture teaches. Paul himself says, for by grace are you saved, not from works. The very same Paul writes that elsewhere. He says work out your salvation. The word has a kind of literal sense of bring down, really bring down that thing that is there, bring it to completion, uh, work according to, put it into effect in some sense. See, what we need to understand here is that salvation is much bigger in the Bible than we often give it credit for. Again, I've noticed as evangelicals, maybe it's because of the culture around us, that kind of quick and easy microwave kind of culture is that salvation is often reduced to a one-time event only. If you notice this, how do, we, how do we speak about salvation? If you look at the tenses we use with our verbs, past, present, future, I think pretty much I almost only hear people use salvation in the past. Well, I was saved then. I have been saved, past tense. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'm not critiquing that. That's a very biblical thought, as I just mentioned. Paul has said that. You were saved then. But it's also larger than that. The same Paul can elsewhere. He writes things like, you are being saved, present tense. You will be saved, he says, future tense. He addresses the Corinthians, that uh, bunch of very difficult people is saying, you are those who are being saved. He tells the Romans, he says, salvation is much nearer now to you than it was when you first believed. Isn't that interesting? Salvation is nearer. There's a sense in which it's past, but it's also something that's held out for us still. He tells the Romans, we're saved in hope, a hope of what is to come. We have the hope of salvation laid out for us. Do you see that the Bible uses salvation in all these different ways? Our our Lord himself in his earthly ministry, I think almost nearly exclusively talked about salvation in a kind of future way. He says, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. He says, by patient endurance, you will gain your souls. 
sort of held out for us. See, as Protestants, we love the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and rightly so. It's a foundation for everything. It's an important aspect of our salvation. But we need to not forget sanctification as well. And sanctification is not, not salvation. It is a part of salvation. Salvation, in a sense, is the whole. How does God take a sinner in rebellion and bring him completely to himself at the very end? And it begins with justification. It begins with that declaration that apart from anything you've done, you're forgiven. But then there's the rest of it as well, to work it out, to be glorified, to be brought to God on the final day. So God saves us not only from the penalty of sin, not only from the guilt of sin, but the power of sin in our life too. That's salvation. If we can't really say that's salvation, we're really limiting what God is able to do in our life. We're saying he doesn't really care about uh, getting rid of sin in our life, his saving activity taking effect in our life now. Some of us might be tripped up here by Paul's statement, your own salvation. He says work, he says work it out, but then he says work out your own salvation. It's actually quite emphatic. Is he saying that salvation is something that we own, something that comes from ourselves? Again, that we have to kind of work from at it within. Again, this is uh, not the case, but what it's actually doing is bolstering the, the case that he's not talking about a kind of self-righteousness or earning of salvation. How is that? What does this mean here? Paul has already spoken about his own salvation earlier in this letter. If you remember in chapter one, Larry was uh, preaching about this in verse 16, Paul says that he expects or waits for uh, a coming salvation. And it's kind of a play on words because we don't know if Paul's talking about just being released from prison. It could be that. But it seems like Paul is kind of wanting us to think about both in a sense. He says, I'm hoping for a release from prison, but really even more than that, there's a salvation that waits for me either way. A sort of word play on this. So Paul is talking about his ultimate salvation. He says, I've told you about my trust and what I'm waiting on. Now work out your own as well. God's going to deliver you as well. And not just ultimately at the end, but now in some sense too. There might be another way in which Paul is emphasizing your own salvation in this passage. Uh, this might strike us as odd at first, maybe even a bit counterintuitive. But whose salvation has Paul just been talking about? Just in the passage before. Well, Jesus's actually. That sounds kind of odd. Jesus' salvation. Jesus isn't saved from sin, from his own sin. But Jesus is actually delivered from death. He's saved from death. He's saved from sinful men. All throughout scripture, these words are used to describe Jesus' own, in a sense, redemption. He's redeemed not because of his own sin, but from bearing sin's curse. And he's delivered from death. Paul, again, in Romans, uh, writes about Christ, say that in being loosed from death, death no longer has dominion over him. The Father has vindicated his Son. He's exalted him. Hebrews, as well, says that he has become the pioneer of salvation, the source of salvation through his deliverance from death. So here's the logic then I think Paul's getting at, is that Christ the Son was saved by his Father. He trusted his Father even to the point of death. And we have the same in Christ. So he says, work out your own salvation. Work it out. 
the salvation now that is given to you in Christ as it applies to you, as it pertains to your life, work it out. Let it have its effect. Again, that's why I like kind of that literal translation of bring it down. That salvation, in a sense, is with Christ. Christ himself is the source of our salvation and he's exalted in heaven. And Paul is, in a sense, saying, bring it down to your life. How does this work out right here and now? Christ is the source of it. That's where your salvation is. Our salvation is in heaven. He says, bring it down. (laughs) Bring it down to this level here. How does it work out for you? Let that salvation take effect in your life. That same pattern, by the way, humility and exaltation, death and resurrection, deliverance and vindication. See, we work from this salvation in Christ as a starting point, not as something we have to work up to. Paul's saying, bring it down. Don't work up to it. Bring it down now. Uh, The father's deliverance of his son is now ours to be worked out in us and yes, also by us as well. That's why the way the fear and trembling part, you might ask why the fear and trembling, but it's kind of a bit unnerving, isn't it? That God is calling you now to include you in his saving work. Certainly the accomplishment of salvation on the cross was done apart from you. That's the Bible's emphasis. You had no role in that. While we were still sinners, why we were still enemies from God, God did that work totally apart from you. God also drew you to himself entirely apart from any willingness you had in yourself. Yes, God justified you as well. He declared you righteous apart from any working, any kind of gift of obedience you could give to Christ. But now... With all of that past, Paul is saying God does now include you in this work of salvation as it takes effect in your life. That's a bit of fear and trembling, isn't it? That None of this takes away again from the finished accomplishment of Christ on the cross. We can't add to that accomplishment. It's there. It's done. It's finished. But that effect can take uh, effect and it can work out in our life as well. That's not taking away from it. That's why Paul later in this letter says, I'm striving toward it. We'll get to this in chapter three. He says, I've not yet obtained it. I'm pressing on. I'm looking ahead to this. He says he's seeking to be conformed to Christ's death and resurrection in his life. Let the power of the resurrection work out in his life. You might ask, well, Paul, hasn't that already happened? I mean, you you believed in Jesus, right? Didn't his death and resurrection already take effect for you? Yes but more and more, being conformed to it, letting its one-time declaration have this ongoing effect in your life. By the way, if all of this sounds a bit like the Christian life is work, it's because it is. It might sound a bit discouraging for us today, but I actually think that it is quite encouraging to think about this. Because if you have been a Christian long enough, Uh, you might wonder, why is all of this so hard? Why is it so difficult, actually? See, if we view salvation as only a one-and-done kind of thing, certainly it is that, accepting Christ, being saved by Him in that moment, but if it becomes a kind of claim ticket that we can kind of just stick in our back pocket and we're ready to go, nothing else can be done in the rest of our life, well, that wouldn't be very complicated, would it? Nothing would be particularly very hard. Does the Christian life strike you as often quite hard? Is it difficult? Does it have a struggle? Well, then if that's the case, take hope because that's part of what it is. You aren't doing something different 
than what Scripture is calling to you. It wouldn't need to comfort you and encourage you, tell you, don't grow weary. If there was never a point of, well, why would I grow weary? Well, because you have to struggle through this. You have to let it work out in your life. But it's here where Paul also gets to an important statement of saying, all this might look like it's all on us. He says, the ground and source of your working out is from God himself. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Do you notice here the different types of work here? Might be making too much of this, but it's kind of fun when you think about it. Paul says to us, work out. And what is God doing for us? Well, he's working in. So God works in, and for us, it works out. God is the cause of it, and then the rest of what we're doing here is the effect. One works in, the other works out. Again, on the one hand, it looked like it was all of us. Now it looks like it's all of God. Well, which is it, we might ask, as we look at this uh, passage. As many look at Scripture itself. Uh, it's both. <laughs> we work because God works. One doesn't negate the other. See, God's work doesn't stop. He doesn't say, I'm done here now that you start to do something yourself. But neither is it the case uh, that the fact that God is still at work, that it's his work in our life that says, well, I don't have to do anything. The, if you ever hear this in the Christian life, the alternatives are not the let go and let God, like just don't do anything because God's doing it for you. But neither is it the phrase that you might hear, well, work as if God isn't there. Work if it all depends on you. Well, it doesn't depend on you and you don't have to work as if it all depends on you. Work it out because God is at work in you. The more we are working, the more we are bringing these things to effect in our life, we can be convinced that it's not from us, that it's God at work in us. And neither is this something like a 50-50. Well, some might say, okay, you're right, both. Let's split the difference, 50-50. Okay, not even 50-50, let's, let's get to put it that way. But as one theologian has said, he said, the math of the Christian faith is 100-100. Because God is the source of it all, because God does it all, it is to engage 100% of you, 100%. The activity of God's saving work gives you activity as well, gives you energy. It's from his gracious will, his good pleasure, and that is to work out in your working as well. In one sense, we could really stop this kind of sermon there, uh, but Paul presses this call to work out our salvation in one particular area. A good pastor doesn't just kind of leave it in the abstract, just go do that. He says, I want you to work on something in particular, and that's grumbling and complaining. Why this particular sin to avoid? Why does Paul list that here? Uh, Paul could have really called out any area to apply God's saving grace in our life. We could do that for a number of things, but he mentions here grumbling and complaining. It could be that the Philippians are already struggling with this, characterized by this. Uh, it could be their area of weakness, perhaps. Uh, but we could just as well say that Paul knows that it's going to be a temptation for them. That it's right there as something that will sound very tempting to be involved in. Tempting from their circumstance. Listen again. Paul is gone from them. 
Uh, their great teacher and apostle is gone. Uh, he's absent from them. They're beginning to uh, experience some persecution themselves, we're told. Things are difficult. And when things are difficult, one of the most satisfying things in our sinful nature is to grumble and complain. And Paul wants to head that off. Either way, this section should remind us really of Israel's grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. We had that read where Isaiah speaks of that same passage on the way to promised land. Think about the analogies actually here with this passage. Had Israel been saved already? Well, yes, they had. They had had the exodus. They'd been delivered from their great enemy and their oppressor and captive. But they hadn't yet reached the promised land. They're sort of in that in-between, saved and being saved. But that wasn't very comfortable for them, was, was it? It was difficult at times. They had to trust God. And the grumbling and complaining came. Trusting God and his promises from what he has done to what he is doing and to what he will do ultimately. Again, in this section, salvation is not just what you have experienced already, but something you have to persevere in, something you have to hold fast to, look ahead to. And the reasons for this, Paul speaks about this, first of all, for the church's own sake. He says, refusing to complain, refusing to grumble when things are often quite difficult, we show ourselves to be pure children of God. And maybe Paul has something in mind here again of the Exodus um, and even the passage we read where it says God turned to be their enemy in their grumbling and complaining. It says, show yourselves to be pure children of God. Children of God in, not just in name, but in deed, in truth, in what you are doing. In one sense, this is already who we are in Christ, of course, children of God. But this invisible reality should become visible. His declaration over you that you are a child, that you belong to Christ, uh, should be worked out. Uh, first of all, this I think this is something for our assurance. Paul doesn't mention this specifically, but God wants us to be this kind of people. And as we strive toward that, as we refuse the tempting thing to grumble and complain about difficult things in our life, uh, we can realize that God is at work in us. In other words, you say something like, I know I would have been grumbling and complaining, but God's work in this, me now is showing that I belong to him, that I belong to his family. Uh, grumbling and complaining really ensures that we resist God's work in us. It gets this kind of attitude in us. If you've, uh, I'm sure we've all grumbled and complained that it sort of continues down a particular path. Uh, grumbling and complaining is a way of saying that the change that needs to happen in these circumstances when things are difficult is a change out there. That's what grumbling and complaining is, is that my circumstances need to be different or people around me need to be different. What grumbling and complaining isn't is how can I respond to this situation in a way that is pleasing to God? It's the kind of person that God has made me to. Grumbling and complaining is about external things. People need to change. Everybody else needs to change. And then, man, things would be great. Paul, in a sense, is encouraging us, challenging us to say, where can we say, how do I respond? Turn it on to yourself, what you can control. Work out your own salvation. Don't worry about all of the rest of the circumstances. Paul himself, by the way, is doing that. He can't change the circumstances of what he's doing, but he can change his response, how, he's, how his attitude is toward this. But it's also that 
not grumbling and complaining is quite missional. It's an aspect of our witness to those outside. Paul doesn't seem here to have in mind necessarily a kind of personal evangelism, but simply living the way we are as Christians that will set us apart. He says, we'll be pure children of God in the midst of, literally in the middle of, surrounded by a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is one of those passages that gets so well this idea of in the world but not of it. That particular phrase is not uh, quite in the Bible that in that way, but it's a good summary here so much of this. Paul says on the one hand that we are in the midst of the world. Again, literally in, uh, in the middle of. He says among whom. He says in the world you are lights. So in other words, you don't get to be lights out somewhere else. You have to be lights in the world, surrounded by it. That's difficult. That's our location, our geography. But he also says that being in the world, in a sense, you are not of it. There's something different. You're shining as a light. It's a dark place, but you are to be a light. Pure children of God in a perverse, a crooked generation. Remember the promise to Abraham is that Abraham would have children like the stars in the sky. And what do stars do? Well, they are to shine. And they shine best when it's dark. Not when, you, not when it's light out, but when it's darkest around. And Christ says that he is the light of the world. But because we're in Christ, Christ also says you are the light of the world in him. Fear and trembling again, isn't it? To think about this call that God has given us. Working out our salvation uh, should uh, call us that we belong to God. It should show us that, show the world that we belong to God. It should show the world that we are belonging to God. And I think the reason here is that the opposite of grumbling and complaining is joy and commitment, contentment. And this is really one of the, the biggest themes of Philippians. Remember, Paul says things like rejoice again. I say rejoice. Paul talks about his own contentment later in this letter when he says, I've learned the secret of contentment, whether hungry or well-fed, whether in want or in plenty. And Paul's calling us to that now. See, contentment and joy is the opposite of grumbling and complaining says that despite circumstances around me, that uh, despite what is looking like it could control me, uh, I take responsibility that I can trust God, that my attitude can be one of joy, that joy can come from God himself as our source of joy. Well, in the midst of these Three reasons. Paul also gives an important how-to. There are some incentives and results of not grumbling, but there's an important, well, how do you not grumble? Okay, that's my calling. Uh, what's the means of doing this? And he says, holding fast to the word of life. How can we avoid not looking at difficult things in our life and complaining about it? Holding to the word of life. We can remind ourselves of the promises in God's word, because his word is a word of life. It's a word about life, true life, eternal life, but it's also a word that imparts life. See, grumbling about things is a kind of death, you might say, saying I'd rather be dead than these things, but holding fast to God's word is holding fast to life, to the life he sets out for us. Paul's final encouragement to not grumble might strike us then as an odd one in this last one, maybe even kind of selfish one, uh, but it's also very pastoral. He says, do all of this 
so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Boast, rejoice, have not run in vain or labored in vain. If grumbling makes you ineffectual as a child of God, that compromises your status in the world, but it is also incredibly disappointing to those who have poured into you. And we can limit this not just to Pastor here, Pastor Larry, who does pour into us, but also to other people who have poured into your life, perhaps your parents, friends, those who have called you to Christ, those who have discipled you. See, the test of a pastor, the test of someone who's active in discipleship is not how much knowledge you have, but if you have the test of obedience. Paul doesn't say, I'll be happy if you just know lots of stuff on the last day. It's that if you've been obedient, if you've persevered to the end in joy and in faith to the very end. Uh, Not obedience, by the way, to Paul either, but obedience to the one he's calling obedience to, to Christ himself. That's what pastors are called to do. Uh, The Corinthians weren't particularly keen on Paul's leadership style, if you remember. Uh, And in uh, 2 Corinthians, it looks like they keep asking for letters of commendation from Paul. It's kind of funny. It's like, let me see your references again, Paul. Who again did you say you're good with? And Paul says it this way. His answer was, you are our letter of commendation. Your lives are an epistle of Christ, written not with ink on tablets of stone, but written by the Spirit on tablets of the heart. Paul says, The test of how good of an apostle I am is, are you obeying? Are you living the way that Christ has said? You are my letter of commendation, whether I'm a good apostle or not. My congregations that I've planted and my calling them to Christ, that's the test in all of this. Perhaps more even than that, I think Paul is actually giving himself as a kind of example of how we are to approach this working out of salvation of the Christian life. We should run. We should labor again words of, of, of exertment, we're exerting ourselves, but he says, not in vain. The Christian life is not without assurance, it's not without trusting and striving, but Paul doesn't just assume either that whatever he does, it's just going to work out. Paul is saying, I'm striving so that this does not work out this way. Our actions really can confirm or deny the work of God in our lives. See, Paul isn't presumptuous. Working out your salvation uh, in whatever calling you have isn't optional. Isn't it just a side add-on? It's integral to what you are to do. And Paul says, do this not in vain. Do this not in vain. Paul ends our passage today by giving the Philippians an example of how to work out your salvation, how to grumble, uh, how to not grumble in doing that. He compares his own life to this. I think that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, He doesn't say it this way, but giving himself an example. Paul is being poured out like a drink offering, he says. We might uh, use the phrase in our own language that Paul is being spent. He's spending his life on others in faith. And the Philippians are the ones he's pouring himself out on. They're the priests or the sacrifice. And Paul is like the drink offering that goes on top of it, making them acceptable to God. It might even be a reference of Paul wondering if whether this is the very end. He's pouring himself out so that there's nothing left now here at the end of a prison sentence. But Paul doesn't have a martyr complex about it. That's what he's saying. Even if I am being poured out, even if all of this is uh, looking like it's not ending well, what does he say? I'm not grumbling. I'm not complaining about how things have turned out. He's glad, he says. I'm content. I'm content with what God has done, 
with the situation God has put me in. He says the Philippians can be glad too. You can be glad. Life comes by giving yourself. That is working out this this salvation. And Paul says you can rejoice in that. You shine as lights in the world. So where does that leave us today? How can we gain encouragement from this? Well, this passage is, first of all, a call to ask ourselves, again, if we have wrongly thought salvation was only something in the past, something one and done. Well, I thought I, I had nothing left to do. I once was saved. So you might ask, are you being saved? Are you looking ahead in faith? Are you letting that past salvation, yes, of coming to faith, of letting your baptism work its way out in your life. In particular, how are you at grumbling and complaining? I asked myself that lots this week. Paul's cross to bear was imprisonment. That's not the cross that many of us will probably have to bear, but you may have a tough situation. You may have a tough situation at home, at work, at school, in family relationships, financially, perhaps the culture around us. But God is at work to will and to do in your life. And can you trust him in that? If you feel the struggle of sanctification, take heart today then. That is part of how God has designed it to be. It takes a bit of work. And actually, it's a dignity that God would dignify us to be a part of that saving work that he has. He wants you to be involved. But the salvation is not something you have to conjure up either. It's something you have to work up to it's something that we can bring down from christ to work out as god works in us it's letting what christ has already done have full effect in your life so be encouraged that god is at work in you so let it have its full effect work out that salvation that god has worked in in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen let's pray together Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you delivered your Son, our Savior, from death and gave him the highest place. We praise you, O God, that in him we have our own salvation and that we can be pure children of you without blemish. So now, Father, by your Spirit, cause us to work out this great gift in our lives by helping us not to grumble or complain but to hold fast to your word and so shine as lights in this world. Grant us not to run in vain, but in joy pour us out as a sacrificial offering that we might at last come on the day of Christ. For we ask this in his name. Amen.